Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We all get a different view of each other today, don't we? Matthew chapter 2. And if, uh, if you didn't come last night and you don't have plans to come tonight, I would encourage you to change your plans. Um, it, it, it's a wonderful um, opportunity to bring friends, to uh, hear wonderful music and celebration uh, our, our, from our children's choir to, to bells to... Uh, uh, beautiful ballet to uh, the orchestra. It's a, it's a wonderful night, so I do hope that you will come this evening. In Matthew chapter 2, we read this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. See, they went there expecting to uh, fully to see a big celebration when they got there, and they didn't see anything. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned uh, the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and Behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, notice where he was at this point, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's, Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that you would open your word to us, that you would help us to see how it applies to every single person in this room. 
not just to others, but to us. And so we pray that your spirit would move, move among us and, and would teach us and move our hearts, most importantly. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And I guess you in the balcony that can't see me at all, just pretend like you're listening to the radio or something. <laughs> On the game show Family Feud, now I, I have seen it, I don't watch it on a regular basis, but uh, I read that, uh, and it's hosted by Steve Harvey, uh, they, uh, if you don't know of the show, they ask questions and, uh, of about 100 people. And then they responded various survey questions. Uh, back in 2012, there was an episode, and the, the question was, when someone mentions the king, to whom might he or she be referring? Let me give you the top four answers. Number four, two people said the Burger King. Three people said Martin Luther King Jr. Seven people said God or Jesus. And 81 said who? I'm ashamed of you people. <laughs> so you were watching that episode... Well, it was. That, that's, what, uh, that's what they said, Elvis Presley. And as, when I saw that, I, I thought about it. And in some defense, uh, apparently one of the contestants, when she mentioned uh, Jesus, she said, I think I'll go with the king of kings. And, and uh, Steve Harvey said, yes, you know, like that. So, um, and I think if they'd ask it differently, maybe it would have been different. But Here's, here's what I got to thinking about. Um, you know, when you, when you think of a king, certainly from a worldly perspective, uh, Elvis probably pretty well fits it, doesn't he? He dressed like a king. Those of you that remember him, you know, I, I just picture him all in gold, uh, with a cape, you know, he would walk out with a cape and, and you know, with gold on. Uh, he had an entourage. He lived like a king. People still go in veneration to the place where he lived. He lived the lifestyle. From the world's perspective, I, I don't think we should be all that surprised that, that people would tend to, to think of him as the king. And that leads us right to the very first thing I want us to talk about in terms of Jesus. This is, uh, during this series, is the, the first of, in the series where it's not as much a name it's a name that is a description. 
of who he is. Christ the King and, and Christ Messiah goes with uh, his, his kingship and so on. But, but we understand that in the incarnation, he didn't look like a king. Think about that, and, and we've looked at that uh, this, this month. Uh, in terms of uh, at his birth, first of all, we, we know what at least the shepherds found shortly after his birth. Now, the, the Magi might have gotten there a little bit later. They evidently did. He was, he was in a house. Um, there's speculation that it could, be, could have been a good bit later. Uh, and that's one reason when he asked when the star appeared and that there had been a journey. And so there's some debate about how long it was. Some say at least, you know, 40 days. Some say it might have been up to a couple of years. That's why, that's why uh, he had, you know, uh, the boys killed from two years on down. But in any case, think about what those when, that, that came immediately, the, the shepherds to worship him, what they found. Well, they found him in a cave, basically, in a manger in a cave with animals. And even here, he was in a, a house, could have been one of his relatives, and not a palace. So when it came to his, his birth, there was nothing about his birth that would have indicated this one is the king that has come. And then in terms of his life, you know, I, I, we, we kind of make fun of the family feud survey, but I don't know whether you realize this or not, but Jesus, kind of, he took an opinion survey about a similar thing. You remember that? He, he said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, the answers, the top four answers, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. Those were the top four. No one was saying he's a king. No one was saying this is the king of kings that, that has come. Until his triumphal entry into Jerusalem he wasn't treated like a king, and even at, at, at that, it was way, a way different kind of uh, king as he came in on the back of a foal of a donkey. So, you know, when, when we see that, we see that in, in his life, he didn't act like a king in terms of his death. He didn't die like we would think a king would die either. However, close to his death, there was a good bit of talk about him being king. In Mark 15, I'll just, I'm going to read you a number of verses uh, uh, between 2 and verse 32, but, but here, here, here are some of the things that were going on during his trial before his death. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? 
He answered him, you've said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. You know, they got upset when he basically said, you know, you've said what you've said is true. Verse 9 then in Mark 15. He answered them saying, do you want, this was Pilate, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Verse 12. Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Verse 17, they, they clothed him in a purple cloak, making fun of him. Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And then verse 26, this is on the cross. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. In verse 32, this is what they're saying to him. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. We know that he was crucified. We know that he was Buried not in the, the tomb of a king, but in a borrowed tomb. Not like the world would recognize a king. So in the incarnation, Jesus didn't look like what the world thought of as a king. Now here's, here's an immediate application of that. What, what we need to grasp is that when it comes to the kingdom... What's true isn't necessarily what uh, the eyes of flesh or the eyes of the world would indicate as true, but rather what God says is true. So, in other words, he didn't, you know, he didn't look like a king, but God, who is really the important one in this, is the one that determines what's true. But there are times in the kingdom that the only way we can understand that is through eyes of faith, not through eyes of the flesh. So we couldn't have proved that he was a king just by looking at him and saying, well, obviously he is a king. Look, look, look how he acts. Look, look what he looks like. Look what, he, look what he wears. But there will be a time. And that's the second thing I want you to grasp. There will be a time when Jesus will look like a king and all eyes will see it. Let me read to you from Revelation 19. I want you to listen to the description and contrast it with what we've been saying about him not, not looking like a king. Listen, beginning in verse 11. This is a vision of that which is to come. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. Those are crowns. And he has a name written 
that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Does that sound like a king? That's how he will appear in the future. There will be no mistaking him on that day like there was in the past. Now, what's he going to do as a king? Well, he's, he's going to carry out that which was promised before. For instance, he's going to defeat the enemy once and for all. Let me read to you again. This is from uh, Revelation 20. Verse 7 says this, When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. You get the picture here? The saints are surrounded. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Ultimate, final, devastating defeat of the evil one. Now, we've looked back, we're looking forward. Here's the thing about looking forward. We must not just keep our eyes on the immediate forward. In other words, just what's going on tomorrow or the next day or the next few days. That's too short of a term. It will wreck our perspective. Back to our passage in, in Matthew chapter 2. Think about if, if all people looked at was what was going on there when their sons were being taken and killed and all the little boys in the area were killed, here would have been the conclusion. Well, if there is a king, he must not be good. Because look what's going on around us. Or he must be weak. Now, neither of those things were true. But if we, if we look at just what's going on in our lives and in the world around us, and we look on the short term, we will draw wrong conclusions about who God is. Instead, 
we need to look at, at what's going on in light of who we know God is and interpret them in that light. What gives us a better perspective is to look, uh, look ahead far beyond tomorrow. Look ahead at the fact that Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, he's coming as this king. And he will make things right at that point. John Stott uh, says we, we need to understand the what is and what will be. And we've talked about that, the already and the not yet. In other words, there are things that have already taken place that we we know where the kingdom is, is here in some sense, but there's also the not yet because at some point in the future, things will change and they will be finalized in the best of sense. Here's what he says. Already the kingdom of God's been inaugurating and is advancing. Not yet has it been consummated. Already the new age has come so that we have tasted the powers of the coming age, not yet has the old age completely passed away. And then he goes on to conclude, an overemphasis on the not yet leads to defeatism. An acquiescence in continuing evil which is in, incompatible with the already of Christ's victory. So he will come and everyone will recognize him and he will defeat Satan, but what else will he do as the king? Well, I want to read to you from Matthew 25. That's where we see he will judge the living and the dead. So we understand he'll look like a king. He will defeat Satan. And then he's going to judge the living and the dead. And, and here's, here's what we need to know about this. This applies to every single person in this room. Every person in this room will take part in this scene that I'm going to read to you. Here's what it says. Beginning with verse 31 in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations. He'll separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then verse 40. And the king will say, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It's an awful scene. This is not what we want to think about at Christmas, but this is, this is the king that is, is coming and, you know, the, the ultimate, absolute, best news is that he offers 
for you to be one of His and not to be cast where the devil and his minions are. So back to Jesus saying, who do you say that I am? Because that's what it depends on. Okay, he gave the top four. Who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they, they told him the top four. And then he said this, and this is a question for us as well. But who do you say that I am? Now, Simon Peter answered. This is Simon Peter who opened his mouth usually only to change feet, right? And that's part of the reason Jesus responded after Simon Peter said this. Here's what Simon Peter said. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He knew Peter. He knows all of us. He said, you know what? The reason this is, this is such an important profession of faith is because you didn't just figure this out on your own. You didn't just blurt out something on your own. The only way you could know that I am the Christ, the King, the only way you could know is it's revealed to you from heaven. And that's how we come to Christ. Think back to the Magi. Back in our passage in Matthew 2, verse 11, it says, And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now it's interesting when we, when we talk about these gifts. I'm, I'm always careful when we, when we think of this thing representing that and, and so on, but um, commentators make much of these, these gifts in this sense and ones that I trust that aren't just going to go into a lot of spiritualism and so on. They, they believe, and, and I'm convinced as well, that these were not accidental gifts. These were gifts that God in His providence guided them to give because they're strange gifts for a baby, aren't they? Rather strange. In these gifts, though, you can see his gospel work that was coming. You have frankincense, which is what we think of as incense. It's a fragrant gum rosin that's used in, in, in that day, was used by most religions but it was used as well in worship in the Jewish temple. Now think about the kinds of things that went on in the Jewish temple. We know that there was sacrifice, that there was animal sacrifice. If you have ever field-dressed a deer 
or been around an animal being butchered, you know that it doesn't smell good. Part of the idea of the incense was to make it tolerable. Now, it, it represented, you know, sending it up to God and so on. But for the smell of that. So when we think of frankincense, we think of that work of the priest and ultimately the high priest. And here we have Jesus who came as prophet, priest, and king represented here. So that when he came and he did his work on the cross, there was no more need for sacrifice. There was no more need for a human high priest because then Jesus went in and sat down next to the Father and represented his people, which was the job of the high priest. So we have the frankincense. And then the myrrh. What a strange gift for a newborn, even a king. It was a substance that was used for embalming the dead. When mixed with wine, it also could be used as an anesthetic. You may remember that Jesus on the cross was offered that mixture, and he refused it. But only a short time later, the myrrh was used on him. After he died, we read that, uh, that Joseph took that mixture, and, and they wrapped him up with with the, the myrrh next to the body, which was a common thing to do. So when Peter and John and then the women later came to the tomb on that Sunday after he had been in the tomb, when they walked in, they saw empty grave clothes and instead of the smell of death, they would have smelled myrrh. And then the other gift was gold. This one of all the gifts is fit for a king. Obviously, for a king. That's what you would take to a king. So with the other gifts, we... We, we see God in his providence saw fit to foreshadow the work of, of Christ. The sacrificial work, but not ending there, but his ongoing work forever as the king who will be on his throne forever and ever. And then look what happened with the Magi. It says, verse 12, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Interesting that they were warned in a dream. We are seeing uh, in global missions all over the world that more often than not, when Muslims come to the Lord, 
involved in their testimony is a dream or a vision. God seems to work that way particularly with those that are coming from that. These came from the east. They had their own supernatural thoughts, but God evidently saw fit to work in their hearts. I'm convinced that that's why they went back another way. God revealed to them. God showed them. And God had worked faith in their heart. Now, when they arrived in uh, Jerusalem, they were going by their human reason, their intellect, weren't they? They were astrologers. They follow a star. They had read uh, things from various religions. That's why they were uh, somewhat familiar with even the Hebrew Scriptures. But here we see, like Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to them. But instead, it says, they bowed down and worshiped and treated him as a king. If God had not awakened that faith in them, they would never have acknowledged this one in this little house as a king. He was a baby. So if we're going to ask the question, what, what does, if he's the king, what does it mean to be the subject of a king? Because most of us have never lived in, in a country where there was a king, so we don't, we don't know a lot about what it is. Look, if, if Elvis is king, it has no effect on our lives. If Jesus is king, it changes everything. Everything. There are two kinds of subjects of a king. There is a willing subject and an unwilling subject. In Philippians 2, after it talks about Jesus humbling himself all the way to the cross, then it goes on and says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So we see him taking his, his kingly place. So that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What Paul is saying here is that we will all be subjects of the king. The only question is, will you be a willing subject or an unwilling subject? That's the only question left with this. The good news is you are invited to be a willing subject by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life. Not trusting your own works. That will never be enough you will be frustrated and you will never, ever know whether it's enough because it won't be enough. But trusting in what he did on the cross alone for eternal life. Let's bow together.
Lord, will you today do what you did with, with Peter? Will you do what you did with ultimately with the other disciples? Will you do what you did with, with the Magi, with the shepherds? Will you do what flesh and blood cannot do, and that is convince hearts that you indeed are the King of kings and Lord of lords? Will you cause every knee in this place to bow as a willing subject to the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in what he has done alone for our eternal life? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.